good morning, Zion, or good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, wherever you're at watching this. Uh, happy Palm Sunday. I'm really, really excited to be here with you, sharing God's word with you today uh, as we get ready to celebrate uh, Easter weekend and the, the resurrection of Christ. Uh, starting today, for the next two weeks, we're going to take a break from our spiritual disciplines uh, sermon series. And we're going to take some time to preach through Palm Sunday and Good Friday uh, and leading up to Easter Sunday. And so we're going to talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus uh, and what that means for us today. And I'm really excited to be celebrating uh, this year with you. Um, if you're watching this live, you can text sermon, the word sermon, to 9700. Uh, and that's going to give you the sermon resources kit that we put together for every sermon. Uh, when we're up here preaching, we have a, a limited amount of time to uh, share about a portion of scripture of God's infinite word. And so there's a lot more that we can dig into and we can learn together. And so we put these resources together so that we can do that as a church. And so you can text again, sermon to 9700, and you'll receive that, um, that resource kit. So today we're going to be, be speaking about uh, Jesus's triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Uh, this is the, the portion of scripture where we get the tradition of Palm Sunday from. Uh, and this is Jesus walking into Jerusalem uh, to celebrate the Passover feast. This is just before he's going to get crucified. Um, and this is a time of uh, celebration, of excitement. People are praising him. And we're going to really dig into John's account um, of, this, uh, of this event and uh, see, see what implications it has for us today. Um, and so let's, let's pick up in uh, John chapter 12, verses, uh, starting at verse 12. So the next day, a large crowd that had come to the feast had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason that the the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the opportunity to, to share in your word together, to learn uh, of your time on the earth, to learn about you and the salvation that you bring. We thank you that you uh, died for us and that you resurrected, uh, you were resurrected for us and that you, you offer us salvation and eternal life. We thank you for what this, this week and next week symbolized to us. Uh, and we're excited to celebrate together, Lord. I pray that you would use me, that you would speak through me, that your spirit would communicate to, to your church what you want to communicate, Father. In your name we pray. 
So John gives us a, a really full, beautiful, vivid picture of what's going on as Jesus enters Jerusalem. Uh, this scene was full of energy. It was full of excitement. It was full of joy. Uh, this wasn't just a, a, a light thing that happened. This was, uh, this was a moment that was hundreds of years in the making. This was a moment that generations and generations and generations of people had been waiting for. The Jews were waiting for the Messiah to come and liberate them and free them. And uh, in this portion of scripture, Jesus is now being hailed and worshiped as the Messiah by this large crowd of people. This moment is backed by years and years and years of waiting. And so all that waiting had come to a head. It had come to this moment and people were ecstatic. There's no way I can overstate the amount of excitement that the, that the people in this scene, most of the people in this scene were feeling. Um, for some reference, do you remember how, how crazy Chicago got when the Cubs made it to the World Series after a 108-year drought? Or do you remember how wild Philly got when the Eagles won their first Super Bowl? Or do you remember how good that first day of spring feels, that first time you hear the ice cream, ice cream truck jingle after a long winter feels? Right? These are, these are moments of waiting, and when they come to a head, the, the, the great feeling that comes along with them. Uh, do you remember the relief that you felt after your package that was lost in the labyrinth of the United States Postal Service finally made it to your doorstep after weeks of waiting and not knowing if it was actually going to come or not? Right? These are moments of waiting, and when the waiting is done, the joy and relief that you feel is... is uh, is impactful. And so this was those moments times a thousand, times a million. This was people waiting for their savior and he had finally shown up. This was a really big deal. The crowds were going crazy because Jesus was there. And so let's start digging into the story and let's look at all of the characters. John takes care to highlight these different groups of people that were around Jesus. And he talks about who they were. And then he talks about how they reacted to Jesus being there at that moment. And so we're going to we're going to uh, take some time to look at who all these people were and how they reacted. Uh, but first, let's take a look at the main character in the story. Right. Jesus, Jesus Christ, the savior of the world, the Messiah. He's coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. John takes care and all of the gospels take care to highlight this fact that he was on a donkey. And why is that? Why, why is it important that Jesus came on a donkey as opposed to walking or as opposed to a horse or as opposed to a chariot? Well, let's take a look at, um, take a look again at verse uh, 14 and 15. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So verse 15 here is taken from the book of Zechariah, which is an Old Testament book. It was written about, it was written more than 500 years before uh, Jesus came on the scene. So this was written 500 plus years ago. And what it's saying, uh, Zechariah is getting a vision. He's getting a prophetic word. God is giving him insight into what the future Messiah is going to look like. 
And he says specifically, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And so Jesus deliberately went out and found a donkey and got on this donkey and came into Jerusalem. This wasn't an accident. This was Jesus proclaiming to this group of people, yes, I'm the Messiah. Yes, I'm the one you've been waiting for. Yes, I'm the true king of Israel. I'm here now. It's me that you've read about. It's me that you've been waiting for. I have arrived. And so this is a really bold statement that Jesus is making. He's not trying to be understated about it. He's not trying to talk in parables about it. This is Jesus saying, literally, you read this about the Messiah. Now I'm doing this. I'm the Messiah. But also it's important because Jesus was making a statement about the type of king he was going to be. So he's not only saying, I'm the king and I'm here. He's saying, this is the type of king that I'm going to be. This is who I am. And so when we think about kings, when we think about princes, right? We don't have many, many modern reference points. But think about all of the fairy tales and Disney movies that you watched growing up and all the books that you've read. Right When the king comes, when the prince comes, he comes riding on a noble stallion, on a steed, and the mane is blowing in the wind, and it's this big, beautiful, majestic creature. Right There's a lot of glory associated with that. There's, there's a beauty, there's a regalness about that. And Jesus said, no, I don't care about that. I'm going to come on a donkey. I'm going to come on an animal that is made for work. I'm going to come on an animal that is not highly esteemed, is not considered beautiful, is not considered glorious, but this is how I'm coming because I'm not an earthly king. I'm the king of heaven. I'm the, I'm the king of, an, of a heavenly kingdom. And so I'm the king, yes, but I'm not going to look how you expect the king to look. And I'm not going to sound how you expect the king to sound. And I'm not going to do what you expect the king to do. And so we have Jesus riding on a donkey, making these bold statements about who he is. And so now let's, let's start to, to pick apart the crowd that was around him and see how they reacted to what Jesus was doing. So the first group we see uh, in verses 12 and 13 and then 17 and 18 is the worshiping crowd. So this is the crowd of people worshiping Jesus. And let's read that again. The next day, a large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And then in 17 and 18, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. And so you have this crowd of people who are yelling, who are screaming, who are shouting praises and worship to Jesus because they believe he's the Messiah. And why do they believe that? Well, a little while earlier, Jesus' friend Lazarus died. And four days after he died, Jesus shows up for the funeral and there's a big crowd of people there and in front of this crowd of people, Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb. So he's already dead. He's wrapped up. He's put in the tomb, which is the equivalent of, of being put into the grave. 
And Jesus calls him out and Lazarus miraculously gets up and walks out of the tomb and is now alive. He'd been dead for four days. He's now alive. And the people who were there lost their minds. They had never seen anything like this. They'd seen miracles before, but they'd never seen somebody who was dead be resurrected. This was the first time. And so rightfully so, they couldn't stop talking about it. This was the hottest bochinche in town. Uh, if you were there, the first thing you did was you got on the phone and you called your homies, you called your theos and your theas, and you were like, yo, y'all remember Jesus? Yeah, the dude who's been going around and doing the miracles and preaching in the synagogue? Yeah, yeah, well, well, the homie Lazarus died. He was dead. I was at the funeral. We was mad sad. Jesus showed up, went to the tomb, and he called him out and now he's alive. Yeah, yeah, I was right there. Like Jesus bumped my shoulder and I had a little stiff neck, but he bumped my shoulder. Now the stiff neck's gone. I guess he healed me too. Jesus called him out. I was right there. It smelled mad bad and everything. But this dude must be the Messiah. Who else could do these mighty works from God? And so the people who, who witnessed this miracle couldn't stop talking about it. And rightfully so. So you've got one part of the crowd being these people that witnessed Jesus do this miracle and were like, beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is the Messiah. Lazarus was dead. Now I'm having lunch with him. This has to be the Messiah. This has never happened before. And then the other group of people are the people that heard about it, are the people that, that were told about it. So they have secondhand information, but they're trusting it enough to say, you saw it, I believe you, I trust you. And I'm also affirming that this has to be the Messiah because who else could do these works? And so the people are believing that Jesus is the Messiah. They're calling him the King of Israel. And they're so happy that he's finally here. They've been waiting. Their parents had been waiting. Their grandparents had been waiting. But Jesus is finally here. Now, it's important to take a minute to talk about why they were so excited for the Messiah. And it's because the Messiah was going to liberate them. The Messiah was going to take away their oppression. And what was their oppression? Well, at that time, they thought the, most, the, the, the biggest oppression they had was the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was occupying their land. And the Roman Empire was oppressing them. And it was making the laws and the rules and setting the taxes. And the people didn't want to live under this oppressive Roman rule anymore. So when they heard that the Messiah was going to come and remove their oppression, he was going to free them. They assumed that, th that, that this had to be a freedom from their earthly oppression. This had to be a freedom from the Roman Empire. And so they're living in oppression and they're saying, when the Messiah comes, I'm not going to have to live this way anymore. And then the Messiah comes, and this is why they're so excited and so happy and so joyful, because they think Jesus is going to make everything on their earthly lives better. They think he's, they expect Jesus to fix things in a very specific way. And we'll talk about Jesus' response to that in a second. So, so far we have Jesus riding on a donkey, and we have the worshiping crowd. The next group of people that John describes are the confused disciples. And we can read that in verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, 
But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So John is one of the disciples. John is one of the people who was there. And John's saying, we were with Jesus, but we didn't fully understand everything that was going on at the time. Right? So the disciples, some of them having followed Jesus for three years now, some of them being the, the original 12 disciples that Jesus called, uh, are, are following Jesus. They're with Jesus. They're experiencing all of these things uh, alongside Jesus, but it's not clicking in their heads. Jesus had been very candid with the disciples in a way that he hadn't really been candid with the general public. He, he, he expressed more to them. He revealed more to the disciples. So they understood more than the general crowd. But John was saying it wasn't until he was crucified and then resurrected that it was revealed to them, that at that point they were able to put all the puzzle pieces together and say, oh, that's why he came in on a donkey. He was fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah and so on and so forth. So we have the worshiping crowd. We have the confused disciples. We got Jesus on a donkey. The next group of people are the only group of people in this account who aren't enjoying this massive celebration that's going on. And that's the grumbling Pharisees. And so let's take a look back at verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. So who were the Pharisees? It's important to understand what their role was before we dig into why they were upset. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. They were uh, the equivalent of today's pastors or priests. It was the job of the Pharisees to teach people how to serve God, to teach people obedience to God, to teach people God's law. This was their job, and they took it very seriously. And so they, they studied God's law, and they taught the people uh, how, how to, to serve God and how to be obedient. But they did it in a way that was really oppressive to the people. And they did it in a way that was really hypocritical. So they would find loopholes around the laws and the rules that they didn't like, around the things that they didn't want to follow. But when other people didn't follow the law to the T, they were very judgmental to them. And they, 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 they put this heavy burden on them. Jesus says earlier that they put a heavy burden on people that they weren't willing to bear themselves. They were hypocrites. And Jesus opposed them at every turn. Jesus was intent on calling out their hypocrisy because the, the religion they were teaching was not the true religion. It was not the true way to follow God. And Jesus had come with that true way, but because the Pharisees were so set in their own ways, Jesus coming on and saying, no, there's a new, a different, a better way to do things was offensive to the Pharisees. And so they hated Jesus. Jesus would not give them an inch. Jesus wouldn't let them live. He wouldn't let them get away with anything. He was constantly calling them out. He was constantly pointing out their hypocrisy and their contradiction. And so they hated Jesus. And so now this man that they hate, that they're trying to discredit, that they're unable to discredit, is now being praised by this massive crowd of people. And to the, the Pharisees, their whole world was falling apart. 
And they say, they say, look, the whole world is following him. We're not gaining any ground. We've been trying to discredit him, but it's not working. What are we going to do? They're desperate. This is a terrible, terrible day for them. It's important to know also that the Pharisees had also heard about this miracle that Jesus did. They also knew that Lazarus had died and was resurrected. But they were so set in their ways, so stubborn, so intent on doing things the way that they uh, had interpreted, that they had determined was right, that rather than taking the evidence of Lazarus being alive and saying, maybe we were wrong, maybe we should reconsider, they instead decided to try to get rid of the evidence and intended to kill both Jesus and they wanted to kill Lazarus again. They wanted Lazarus dead again. Uh, so the, the, the Pharisees were very upset. They were livid. They were grumbling. They were not having a good time. They weren't celebrating with the rest of the people. And so we got Jesus on a donkey. We got the worshiping crowds. We got the confused disciples. And we've got the grumbling, upset Pharisees. The next group of people uh, that John highlights here is a really interesting group of people. Uh, and, and we're going to call them the inquiring Greeks. Um, the curious Greeks. And so let's read verses 20 and 22. So it says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And so John takes time to point out that these Greeks came and they wanted to talk to Jesus. And then he points out this, uh, this, this odd game of telephone um, that, that, that Philip and Andrew play together before they both go and talk to Jesus, right? Uh, John doesn't tell us what the Greeks wanted to talk to Jesus about. He doesn't say why they wanted to see Jesus. He doesn't give us any details. Um, he just tells us that they were there and he tells us how Jesus responded to them. And so the Greeks' arrival on the scene uh, prompts Jesus to go into this teaching that we're going to talk about in a second. But first, it's important to note, uh, who were the Greeks and why are they singled out from the crowd here? Why, why are they singled out differently? And that's because the Greeks simply weren't Jews. The Greeks were considered Gentiles. Uh, Gentiles were anybody who wasn't Jewish. And why is this important? Because Gentiles are you and me. So whenever the Bible references the Gentiles, we fall into that category. And so that's important to understand. This far, Jesus' ministry was only uh, focused on the Jewish people, on the children of Israel. And Jesus was really clear about expressing that. Jesus was really clear about saying that uh, his, his mission at this point in time was to, was to reach the children of Israel, right? But Jesus also alluded to the fact that there were other people that he also needed to reach. And one of the places he does this is a little earlier in John when he calls himself the good shepherd. And he says, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and they know me. And then he says, but I also have sheep who are not of this fold. They're part of a different flock, but they're also my sheep. And so Jesus is alluding there that he's not just here for the Jews, but he's here for a wider uh, range of people. And so now let's look back at the Greeks. Uh, the Greeks. The Greeks come in and they say, we want to talk to Jesus. We want to get closer to Jesus. 
We don't know why they wanted to do that, but they wanted to do it. These were Greeks. They were outside. They were, they were a little further out. They weren't uh, part of the Jews that were able to get close to Jesus and be with Jesus in that way. And this prompts Jesus to say something really interesting. Jesus at this point says in verse 23, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. And that's important. Uh, and this is, this is maybe the most crucial part for us today. Jesus was saying, okay, I've got the Jews here celebrating me, worshiping me, acknowledging me as Messiah. Now I have the Greeks here. Now it's time for me to be glorified. Now that I've got the Jews and the Gentiles, now my mission is in a fuller place. Now it can reach the places that it needs to reach. And he elaborates on that in a second. But before we get there, let's recap. We got Jesus on a donkey. We got the worshiping, joyful, ecstatic crowds. We have the confused disciples walking with Jesus, but not fully understanding what's going on. We have the grumbling Pharisees upset, having the worst day of their lives. And we've got the inquiring Greeks who are curious. They want to see Jesus. And so as Jesus enters the town, we see many different potential responses. We see people uh, trying to get close to Jesus and around Jesus, people being with Jesus in a lot of different ways. But Jesus takes this opportunity to, to teach the people, to make it abundantly clear what it takes to be a true follower of him. So Jesus says, you're all here. You're all having different responses and reactions to me, but there's only one appropriate response. There's only one way to truly be my follower. And so let's pick up in verse, 20, uh, in verse 23 and read through the rest of this portion of scripture. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. And so let's break down Jesus's teaching here. He's talking about losing your life to follow him. And he does this, uh, we're going to break down this, this, this text into three different teachings, two of them very paradoxical uh, that, that, uh, that Jesus shares with his followers. And what is a paradox before we get in? Uh, a paradox is, uh, is two things that, that seem to contradict each other, right? And so, for instance, he's talking about dying to bear fruit. He's talking about uh, if you love your life, then you'll lose your life. These, these are the paradoxical teachings of Jesus, and he loved to speak this way. Um, and we're going we're gonna to look at what, what these teach us about life and what these teach us about following Jesus specifically. And so the first thing he says is that uh, if, a, if, if wheat doesn't die, then it remains alone. But when it's put in the ground, when it's planted, it dies. And then from that point of death, it's able to grow and bear much fruit. And so here he's talking explicitly about his death. Right. We touched on, on a little earlier when the Greeks came, he said, now it's my time to be glorified. 
Well, now he's saying that if I don't die, then my message, then my salvation, the thing I came here to do, can't reach as far as it needs to. If I don't die, the, the, the wheat stands alone. But if I die, then I'm able to bear much fruit. I'm able to get to, to, to spread this much further than I would otherwise. So Jesus is saying, I have to die. My time's come to be glorified, but now I have to die. And now remember, this would have been really jarring for people to hear. This isn't what people wanted the Messiah to do. They wanted the Messiah to lead a revolution, to lead a revolt, to save them from Rome. And now this man, this king that they expected to lead them in this valiant battle, turns around and says, actually, I'm going to go die first. Uh, that, that was not the message that the people wanted to hear. Uh, but Jesus was clear in saying that he had to die to accomplish his purpose. Again, Jesus was the king, but he wasn't going to be the king the people expected. He was going to be the king the people needed. He was going to be the king that accomplished far more than the people understood needed to be accomplished. And so let's look at the next thing Jesus says. Whoever hates his life will have eternal life. Specifically, he says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, what is Jesus saying? Jesus here is talking in hyperbole. Uh, hyperbole is, is when you exaggerate something to really drive home a point. If you know me, if you've hung out with me, I talk in hyperbole often. It's one of my favorite things to do. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of my favorite ways to communicate. Uh, for instance, one of my homies just released the album. And on one of the songs, I, I absolutely love the drums on it. They just, he, he EQ'd them perfectly. They're just like the perfect drums for the song. I love them. So instead of texting him and saying, yo, I love the, the drums on this track, what I did was I texted him and said, yo, every time the drums come in on track three, I die. And then I'm resurrected again, and then I die again, right? Obviously, that's not what's happening, but that was me saying, yo, I love these drums so much. They have such an impact on how I feel. Um, they communicated the point uh, much more effectively, in my opinion, than just texting him and saying, yo, love the drums on that. Good job, right? So that's what Jesus is doing here. He's talking in hyperbole because he really wants us to understand the point that he's trying to make. And so what is that point? He's not calling us to live a sad life. He's not saying if you don't hate everything about your life, every moment of every day, if you're not the emo kid in, a, in, in the high school class with a hood on, dressed in all black with black fingernails, if that's not you, then you're not going to get eternal life. That's not what Jesus is saying. But what Jesus is saying is that everything in our life should weigh so much less than God. Everything we love in life should not compare to the way that we love God. Jesus is saying the things you have in this earth, the things you have in this life cannot be more important to you than God is. You cannot love them more than you love God. And that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, when you look at your life, you should love God so much that it makes these other things that you love, it makes it look like you hate them by comparison. And so Jesus is setting a really high standard for what it looks like to follow him. He's setting a really high standard for the, the type of love we are to have for the Father. 
in Mark, uh, in, in the book of Mark, Jesus uh, speaks on, on a similar theme and, and he ends putting it this way. What good is it if you gain the whole world and you lose your soul? Again, Jesus is the king, but he's not the king that's gonna act the way you want. He's not gonna save what you think he's gonna save. Jesus is more concerned with your eternal salvation, with your soul, with the depth of who you are than he is about, uh, 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 about anything else. That is the most important thing to Jesus. Paul put it this way. He said, all these things are considered rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus. So Paul's saying, everything I have, everything I know, everything I've learned, everything I've studied, everything I've done and accomplished compared to knowing Jesus is garbage. It doesn't even matter. And so what's the next thing Jesus says here? He says that whoever serves him has to follow him, but whoever follows him will be honored by God. Specifically, he says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And so what's Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying explicitly, if you want to follow me, you have to follow me. If you want to follow me, if you want to serve me, you have to go where I'm going. You have to go where I go. You have to do what I do. This is a really high call, beloved. Remember, Jesus, in the verses just before this, said he was going to die. And now he's telling us that if we want to follow him, we need to follow him. We need to go where he's going, be where he is. That's a high call. That's something that, that should be weighed really heavily as you consider your walk with Jesus, as you consider how you follow Christ, as you consider calling yourself a Christian. This is where the prosperity gospel gets it all wrong. Jesus never said, if you serve me, I'll make your life here great. All your issues will go away. You'll live a comfortable life. No, Jesus said, in fact, if you follow me, you're going to follow me into a life of self-denial and self-sacrifice. That is going to be the mark of your life because it was the mark of Jesus's life. Everything Jesus did was in obedience and submission to God. And Jesus is saying, if you follow me, you're going to have to follow me there. I'm about to go die. Are you still willing to follow me? But the beauty of it, the promise of it, is that he says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And so we're going to be with Jesus in death in sacrifice, in self-denial, but we're also gonna be with Jesus, as Paul puts it in Colossians, at the right hand of the Father. So that's the ultimate reward. This is the reward Jesus is concerned about. This is what Jesus cares about. He cares that at the end of the day, that when our short time on earth is finished, that our souls are eternally with him at the right hand of the Father. He's saying, God will honor you. God will acknowledge you. God will see you. You'll be with God. You'll be with me eternally in heaven. And this is Jesus's aim and concern. And this is what Jesus is calling us to do. So Jesus is saying, I'm about to die. And if I don't die, I'm not going to spread this message. And if you want to follow me, you have to love me. You have to love the Father way more than you love anything on this earth. And, and, and you need to love God more than anything else on this earth because 
You're gonna have to follow me into a difficult place, into self-sacrifice, into self-denial. But if you do, the reward is gonna be so much better than anything you could ever attain on this earth. You don't wanna gain the world, beloved, and lose your soul. You profit nothing that way. Jesus is concerned with the state of your soul. And so let's tie all this up as, 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 as we start to wrap up and I start to close. Jesus is making this clear, call, this clear call to us to value God more than we value anything else in our lives. But what does this look like practically? So say you're convinced at this point. Say you're like, okay, bet. I want to do that, Jesus. I want to live that way. Well, what does that look like uh, today? What does that look like for us? Allow me to share an example. So when, uh, when my daughters were born, I have three daughters. Uh, my oldest is eight and my youngest is uh, 11 months. Um, when my oldest daughter was born, my whole life changed. I've had nothing in my life before or after have such an immediate impact, such a large impact so quickly. I remember the moment I held her for the first time, something in me snapped. Something changed, something was different. It unlocked a, a, a room of love that I didn't know existed before. And I've had that experience repeated with each of my daughters after that, right? So when my daughter was born, as my family grew and my family's needs grew, the level of sacrifice that I, I, I had for them also grew. And this was just a natural occurrence. This is just what it made sense for me to do. I loved these kids so much that I, I was willing to sacrifice anything for them. Now, it wasn't always easy. I let go of a lot of things I really loved and cared about. Uh, I did a lot of things I didn't really want to do. But it was never not worth it. There was never a moment where I considered maybe I should put this before them. It was just always clear to me and always made sense that the opposite had to happen, that they had to be at the top of my priority list and everything else had to find space underneath. And so what did that look like? I sacrificed hobbies to spend more time with them and to be around and to help my wife out more, right? I stopped going to the studio. I stopped going to do shows and perform, which is something I loved. I didn't stop loving it, but I just now had this thing that I loved so much more that it was a no-brainer. When the two of them were on the scale, my daughters outweighed it, no question. I took jobs that I hated, man. I remember doing these construction jobs during Hurricane Sandy because I had just lost a job and I couldn't find any other work uh, and somebody hooked me up with a construction gig. And I remember working outside in the freezing cold for hours and hours in these houses with no power, no plumbing, nowhere to use the bathroom, so uncomfortable for not much money, but it was a no-brainer. There was never a day where I said, maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe I should put my comfort at the front of the line here. My comfort mattered so much less because my children mattered more. I've now had this thing that I loved so much more than anything else, than my comfort, than my hobbies, than my own joy, than my own happiness. They mattered more. And so let's take a look quickly at, uh, at the book of Luke. We're gonna go to chapter 14, verse 26, and this is really gonna uh, hopefully tie this together for us. 
Jesus is speaking on a similar theme here as he was uh, in the scriptures we just read. And he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciples. And so we just covered that Jesus likes talking in hyperbole. So is he telling you to hate your wife? No. Is he telling me to hate my kids? No, that would contradict all his other teachings. But what Jesus is saying, and the, and, and the, the, the children part really puts it into perspective for me. What Jesus is saying is if you love your children this much and you're, you're willing to make this much sacrifice for them, then how much more should you love the Father? How much more should you love the creator of yourself and your children? How much more should you love the one who saved your soul, who's guaranteed you eternal life with your children, with your wife, who's, who's done all of these things for you? How much more should you be willing to sacrifice for God? How much more should God be a priority? So instead of telling me to love my children less, Jesus is challenging me to love God more. Jesus is challenging me to increase the level of love that I have for God, my level of commitment to God. And so as we think about Jesus's call to put God, to put him above everything, take a second to think about the things that you love in your life. Take a second to think about your priorities. We all make sacrifices for the things that we love. Time is limited. We can only do a finite amount of things and there are always things that take priority and there are things that fall to the wayside. And so consider in your heart what things need to be put in their proper place in order to truly be a follower of Jesus. What things are taking the place of God in your heart? Beloved, if you're hearing this sermon today, then you have found yourself amongst the crowd surrounding Jesus. You are part of the crowd around Jesus. And you might be reacting to him and responding to him in a lot of different ways. Maybe you're full of joy and happiness Maybe you think that he's gonna come and solve all of your problems and that's fueling your happiness and excitement. Maybe you're angry, maybe you're uncomfortable. Maybe Jesus has gone against what you think religion should be, what you think spirituality should be, what you think love should be, justice should be, kindness should be. Maybe you're confused. Maybe you've been following Jesus for some time but you're not really sure how all the pieces fit together. Or maybe you're just curious. Maybe you just want to see Jesus. Maybe you just want to know a little bit more about him. But beloved, wherever you are on the spectrum of emotion, Jesus is setting forth this call to you. And he's saying, if you follow me, if you truly follow me, if you make me the most important thing in your life, then the Father will honor you and your eternal salvation will be secured with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you for the call that you've placed before us. We thank you that it's not an easy call. It's not always a comfortable call. It's hard to hear. Many, many of your disciples left you because your teachings were hard to hear. 
But you promise us that if we truly follow you, if we truly walk with you, if we go where you go, if we are where you are, then we'll be with you in heaven and the Father will honor us. And truly there is no greater reward that we could hope for than to spend eternity with you. We pray that you would work in our hearts. We pray that you would help us to do this. It's not in our own strength. We pray that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit, God. In your name we pray, amen.